Good evening. It's Monday, June 12th. Welcome to a new episode of System Update, our live nightly show that airs every Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, exclusively here on Rumble, the free speech alternative to YouTube. Tonight, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has long followed a trajectory that made him an ideal Democrat and a beloved liberal. He obviously bears the name of one of the most admired political families of the 20th century in the Democratic Party. His father was the Attorney General of the United States, a senator from New York, and one of the most consequential primary challengers to a sitting American president, having driven President Lyndon Johnson out of the race in 1968 with his surging campaign based on his opposition to the Vietnam War, which LBJ had championed, and that campaign ended only when his father was assassinated. And with a pedigree from Harvard and the London School of Economics, he was also a longtime environmental lawyer. But rather than simply slotting himself into the easy path available to him as the progeny of one of America's most storied political families, he has instead chosen the much more difficult path of being an independent thinker, a dissident to some of the political establishment's most cherished pieties, and is now featuring a deeply heterodox and transpartisan platform on the basis of which he's seeking the Democratic Party nomination against the incumbent President Joe Biden. It's hard to pin down RFK Jr. ideologically, as is true of almost anyone interesting these days. He has become an outspoken opponent of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, a vehement critic of the U.S. security state, especially the CIA and FBI, and an ardent opponent of the extremes of corporatist and crony capitalism, warning that the U.S. has become a corporatist oligarchy, all as a result of a government that relies on a merger of state and corporate power for the benefit of a tiny wealthy elite. All of those views comfortably fit into the mainstream left liberal political framework of the past, but other views he advocates, including his skepticism about vaccines, his harsh criticism of COVID orthodoxies and the health policy establishment that imposed them, and his warnings about the crisis at the border are harder to place. And he's as comfortable speaking with Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon as he is traditional allies in the Democratic Party. But something about his candidacy is exciting Democratic voters. Some of that could be the affection Democrats harbor for his family name, while part of it is likely just a generalized dissatisfaction with Joe Biden and concern about whether he's able to withstand the rigors of a COVID-free full presidential campaign to say nothing of four more years of governing. But there must be more to it than that. RFK Jr. has been making the rounds in media for months now, and the support he's claiming among Democratic voters is only increasing. The latest polls show him with 20% of Democratic voters supporting him, while another 8% support Biden's other primary challenger, Marion Williamson. Democratic Party elites and their media allies may want to pretend it's not true, but there is clearly a real primary challenge to Joe Biden, and right now the leading challenger is RFK Jr. We're excited to sit down with him and speak with him today about a broad range of issues, including what led him to launch this primary bid from within the Democratic Party, the extent to which he's willing to go to advocate and pursue his heterodox agenda, and why he's become such an outspoken critic of the U.S. security state and its foreign policy community, both regarding Ukraine and far beyond. Here's our interview tonight with RFK Jr. So first of all, congratulations on announcing your run for president. It's obviously not an easy thing to do, and we really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about your candidacy. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Glenn. 
Absolutely. A pleasure to talk to you. So let me start off. We've interviewed a couple of other presidential candidates, and I've asked this same question as the first one, which is I do think it takes a lot to run for president. It is sometimes a thankless thing to do, especially challenging a sitting president in your own party. I believe to do that, you have to have some pretty strong policy objections to how the government is currently conducting itself. What are the kind of core motivating issues that caused you to decide to run? Well, I think, you know, the, the when I first started thinking about it, the core issue was the management of the COVID crisis and particularly the lockdowns, which um, seemed just, uh, you know, really inadvised and a bad policy from the beginning. They were, uh, they were counter to everything that WHO, that CDC, that the European Medical, that the European yeah, Medical uh, Agency and the NHS, National Health Service in England, on all their standard uh, pandemic preparedness protocols, they had always uh, advised against general lockdowns. D.A. Henderson, who was the of the deity of um, you know of uh, pandemic response, who is the guy who almost single-handedly um, uh, extinguished smallpox, also wrote these extraordinary um, uh, essays and white papers saying how bad it would be to ever do a, a generalized lockdown. Everybody knew it was wrong, and yet they did it. And even when all the evidence was rolling in that it was having this calamitous effect, not only on um, on mortalities and you know having no effect against the disease, but was having this really uh, dramatic effect on our society. Uh, I, you know, at that point, but Republicans and Democrats were all supporting him lockdowns and I could see that it, it just seemed wrong to me. And then the censorship that came from people who protested the lockdowns seemed antithetical to American traditions and values, and particularly the values of my political party. And yet the White House suddenly, for the first time in history, was collaborating with social media and, and, and media outlets to censor political dissent uh, and criticisms of, you know, of White House policies. And then the war uh, in Iraq, I mean, the war in Ukraine uh, just it was one of the last straws because it was, again, being sold to, to the American public with the same, um, the same kind of comic book depictions that we saw for the Iraq war and for the Vietnam war and all these other wars. And it just, it, it seemed like, you know, uh, and again, you had both political parties and at least it used to be that would, there'd be some Democrats opposing these new forever wars. But now that the opposition had utterly disappeared and I saw the neocons, the same neocons we thought we had run out of town after the Iraq war and were pariahs and would never be allowed near, you know, a government agency again, suddenly were flooding the White House the same as they did in 2001 during the Bush administration and were running this very belligerent, pugnacious foreign policy. But now it's for Democrats. So that's just a starter if you want to hear some other complaints I have. I can go on. Yeah, well, we'll definitely get to those. And I definitely want to dig a little bit deeper into those two in particular as well. Before I do, though, I just want to ask a couple questions kind of more broadly about your candidacy. I've heard you talk before 
about the presidential primary challenge your father ran against LBJ in 1968 that drove him out of the race, and it was largely based on his opposition to the Vietnam War. Your uncle, Ted Kennedy, ran a presidential primary challenge against the then-sitting president, Jimmy Carter, in 1980. And that, to me, is kind of a model for how this can work. On the other hand, it also illustrates the fact that you do come from this very well-known and dynastic political family. I remember in 2016 when people thought it would be Jeb Bush against Hillary Clinton, the son and brother of a former president, the wife of a former president. People were talking about the problematic nature of running our politics dynastically. That power just gets kind of passed back and forth between a small handful of very wealthy and well-known families. Is that a valid concern when it comes to people's concerns about American democracy more broadly? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't really help who I am, so I can't really change that. So I focus on the things that I can change. And uh, and the things that I feel like I can change are, you know, are the policies. And, you know, my my family name gives me a higher profile. It gives me a, a voice. It gives me, uh, and make, you know, gives me accessibility to, um, to some of the kind of levers of power and, you know, the, uh, the media, et cetera. So I'm just going to try to use that as best I can uh, to, you know, to, to, in the larger endeavor of trying to force America to live up to its traditional, to its highest ideals. The fact that you do have this kind of, you know, connection to this storied family and it does give you access to American media channels makes it, to me at least, kind of remarkable, shocking even, that the posture of the Democratic Party in the Biden White House thus far seems to simply pretend that you don't exist. Their explicit view is there is no primary to be conducted. There's no reason to have any presidential debates within the Democratic Party. They basically want to pretend you don't exist, even though you're already at 20% in the polls before the campaign has really even gotten underway. What is your strategy to change that, to force the Democratic Party to acknowledge the existence of your campaign, and most importantly of all, to have debates so Democratic voters can decide? Well, I think realistically, Glenn, um, the only way that I'm going to force the Democratic Party to acknowledge my existence is by winning a couple of primaries. And uh, and so, you know, that's what I'm focused on. And, and I've been, you know, over three years of being blanket censored and 18 years of being at least throttled and, you know, and censored on many, many of the mainstream outlets. I've developed, a, you know, a series of strategies for end running the mainstream media, the corporate media, it's not just the White House that's trying to censor me, but a lot of the allied media groups, you know, group, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, and some of the others that are very, very closely allied with the White House, uh, the da Daily Beast, Slate, even nowadays, Rolling Stone. Um, and, you know, they, but, but there are, because of the social media, for example, Twitter, allows me to to, uh, to communicate with large parts of the American public without getting permission, without those gatekeepers in the corporate press. My uncle ran in 1960 at a time when television had only recently become ubiquitous. And my uncle recognized that that media was very friendly to him for a variety of reasons. Right. And he took advantage of that, and it helped him win the White House uh, President Trump in 2016 recognized 
that Twitter was a very friendly medium for his, you know, his style of, uh, of politicking. And a lot of people saw how he was using Twitter at the beginning and thought, oh, he's going to self-implode. This is, you know, he's, he's gone. Uh, he's doing stream of consciousness on Twitter with no you know, filter and no gatekeepers and, it, and everybody's going to see how nuts he is. And the opposite happened. And, you know, I think that his relationship with Twitter really helped him get into the White House. I think this year there's a new technology, which is podcasts. And, you know, podcasts are reaching lots and lots of people. Joe Rogan reaches a hundred times what the typical CNN audience is. I think uh, Tucker's new Twitter space reached 110 million people last week. That's more than any media, you know, probably in, in, since, you know, I, I don't know, maybe ever. Um, and so... Uh, so, and I, you know, I've been able to get on the podcast. People are allowing me on without uh, censoring me. And it's a very, it's a good media for me because my worst media, Glenn, is a short soundbite TV, network TV show for a couple of reasons. One, I'm, I'm really not good at spinning stuff. You know, I don't feel comfortable with it. And number two, my voice really doesn't kick in for the first five minutes of a broadcast. So after I talk for a while, either people get used to hearing me and can decipher what I'm saying, uh, or my voice also just gets better after the longer that I'm talking. And so well, I can, if I can just interject there, because I think there's a really interesting component to what you're saying. I, have, I think that the kind of collapse of the authority of the corporate media, along with the explosion of independent media, as you're describing, is one of the greatest cause for optimism. Noam Chomsky has talked for a long time about the fact that the kind of concision requirement of corporate television, where you basically have to answer everything in 90 seconds, you have to speak in seven-minute bursts between television commercials, does more to ensure that prevailing establishment orthodoxies get affirmed because if you want to affirm establishment orthodoxies, you don't need much time. You just go on and say, the Russians are evil, we have to protect democracy, and everybody nods. But if you want to delve into the reason why this propaganda is so pervasive, you need time. You need some a format to kind of be able to develop an argument to convince people that they've been deceived and propagandized. I'm wondering whether that's something that you see as a challenge as well, that as someone who's really kind of a dissident now, a critic of establishment thinking on COVID, on Ukraine, and lots of other things, whether the constraints of television make it more difficult for you to kind of make your case. You know what the Overton window is, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, why don't you tell people what the Overton window is? Yeah, so the Overton window, the idea is it kind of defines what the acceptable views are for people to say or think. So if you're able to move that Overton window by kind of bringing into mainstream discourse ideas that had been relegated to the margins or even declared taboo, you open and expand the range of opinions that people will consider. Yeah, and I think the podcasts do that because it allows for nuance. It allows for, you know, it allows for different, the color and the richness that, and, and the gray areas of all these debates, you know, that you can get away from this. This, as I said, this kind of comic book depiction that, you know, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is Darth Vader and, you know, Zelensky is, uh, you know, is Harrison Ford. And that's, you know, we're, we're going back into that again. 
And you can talk about some of the, you know, provocations that the United States was involved in and the neocons in the White House. And, and you can talk about the Azov Italian and the suppression of the press and, uh, and, and some of the nuance here. And you cannot do that on the mainstream corporate media. The Overton window is very narrow about what you're allowed to talk about. And, you know, and if you say anything outside of those parameters, you become a conspiracy theorist. Exactly. They just snickered. They don't even need to make an argument. There's no time to make an argument. In fact, let me just ask you one, this one last question, kind of like about the candidacy itself before the candidacy itself, before we delve into the substance, which I'm excited to do. The... You alluded earlier to the fact that you think the Democratic Party has kind of changed and the fact that neocons have kind of remigrated back to the Democratic Party. It has this very bellicose foreign policy. There's no space. Every single last Democrat of the Democratic Party voted to fund the proxy war in Ukraine on a single no vote. What is your posture toward the Democratic Party in the sense that obviously you want to talk about what you will do if you do get the nomination and you do win? I think we have to acknowledge, though, there's a possibility that you might not. If Joe Biden does end up as the nominee of the Democratic Party, would you endorse and support him regardless of who the Republican nominee is, regardless of what other third party candidates there are? Are you open to supporting a non-Democratic Party candidate? Yeah, I'm going to say that I'm, I have a, I don't have a plan B. I'm focused on plan A, which is winning. All right. Fair enough. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about your candidacy and doing so in a largely positive way, but alluded to the fact that there were some differences I had with you. you mentioned the fact that you seem to me to be a kind of vehement supporter of Russiagate. Your campaign contacted me, said they thought that was an unfair characterization. I went back and looked and concluded that at least it was excessive. And I went on the air a couple of days later and kind of withdrew that characterization and said, there's no need for me to kind of try and describe his views because he's going to be here and I can ask him. So here you are. In terms of this Russiagate narrative that really dominated our politics for five or six years, and the two prongs of it were that the Trump campaign collaborated with the Kremlin to hack into the DNC emails and uh, manipulate the outcome of the 2016 election, and the subsidiary claim was that Trump was some sort of a puppet of Vladimir Putin or controlled by the Kremlin due to blackmail and other leverage. What is your view now about the veracity of those two claims? Well, I, I think that there was a period, which you're correct about, uh, that I um, that I just accepted the mainstream narrative. And, you know, part of that is just my own fault of not being skeptical about it. And part of it also may have been just my natal, you know, uh, bias against Donald Trump, which I, I'm, you know, I was like most Democrats, I was probably just happy to hear anything uh, that, you know, um, that, that confirmed my own notion of, of, uh, of Donald Trump. The, the first time that I, I um, had any kind of inkling that there was, that that narrative may not be complete or accurate was when I was having dinner with Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone lives about a half mile from where I live. And he had Cheryl and I for dinner one night and uh, with his son, Sean, who um, you know who's a who's a podcaster and a political critic and the two of them I I don't know how it came up but you know maybe one of us Cheryl I mentioned it but um, but he scoffed in a way that was very dismissive and uh, and then had a sort of a brief dialogue about um, a brief monologue about how 
uh, there was nothing to that story. And it seemed to me, you know, and you, of course, you're, you're with Oliver Stone, so you think, well, here, he's a guy who's embracing fringe theories anyway. And, you know, you never, you just don't know. But it, but it put the first seed of doubt into my head. And then uh, in 2020, when people started criticizing, including myself, uh, the, the methodology that was being used to prove the COVID vaccines, I all of a sudden started seeing these propaganda tropes or these tropes that were appearing all the time saying anybody who criticizes vaccines is probably a Russian bot uh-huh, or a uh-huh. Russian suit. Uh-huh. So then I think, oh, okay, so here's what they're doing. And, uh, and it, you know, it may be orchestrated. And then as the, uh, as the, you know, I, I think at that point I was open to hearing a different story. And then I started seeing the piles of evidence and, but I still was neutral on it. I mean, in my mind, the jury was out on this stuff uh, until I saw, you know, the, the recent disclosures, the Durham report, et cetera, that showed that, the, you know, that it makes it look like the entire thing was fabricated from a whole cloth. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I focused on it so much was not necessarily because I thought it was an unfair and un- and baseless conspiracy theory that was being propagated by the U.S. security state and the corporate media, which I do think it was. I thought the much more important implication was it was essentially making it so that it was virtually criminalized, inherently so, for American officials to talk to Russian officials. Michael Flynn almost went to prison for calling the Russian ambassador to talk about U.S.-Russian relations. People were petrified of having conversations with Russians because of fear that it would be used to suggest they were sort of a Kremlin loyalist or a traitor. When I look now at the kind of fervor, the anti-Russian fervor that's driving the war in Ukraine, to me, a lot of it seems to have come from this kind of anti-Russian sentiment that Democrats in particular were encouraged to feed on for all these years as part of Russiagate, going back to 2016 when they blamed Russia rather than the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton for her defeat. I'm wondering if that's something that concerns you, this idea that so many Americans are being taught to view the Russians kind of the way we looked at them in the Cold War as this grave existential threat to the United States, and that in part is what is driving what you described as this bellicose mindset toward, toward Moscow. You're, you're the, the answer to your question is yes. I, I you know, I, I now I see in some way that Ukraine war that I see a lot of those, you know, that the the Russian propaganda tropes that we were being uh, that we were being force fed through the mainstream media and always, you know, with the, the source to a U.S. intelligence agent, an unnamed U.S. intelligence agency, which is always suspect. Uh, and usually coming out of the Washington Post and the New York Times, which, you know, have these deep relations, almost mockingbird-like relationships with the U.S. intelligence agencies. And now I see that as kind of the runway to the uh, to the Ukraine war, that it, that it was all, you know, that we were being uh, propagandized to see the Russians as an existential enemy, you know. Right. Uh, Let me ask you about a a recent controversy in which you found yourself more as a window to understand some of your broader views, which was the praise you originally offered for Roger Waters um, with regard to his stance on both Ukraine, which he is opposed to in terms of the U.S. proxy war, as well as COVID. He was questioning a lot of the same 
orthodoxy as you were, and then you ended up deleting that tweet where you praised him and made clear that the reason was because he had held views on Israel and Palestine that you didn't share. I want to ask you about the specific kind of divergencies that you have with him on that question. But before I get into that, why was it necessary for you to delete your praise for Roger Waters just because you disagree with him on Israel? Can't you praise him on Ukraine and COVID and then at the same time say, but there are other issues, including Israel, where I have differences? Why did you delete the praise entirely? Well, first of all, the reasons that I praised him uh, was because of his position on the war, the, his position on COVID, which I thought was very courageous at a time when nobody, and also his position on Julian Assange. Right. Uh, I I disagree, um, I would say, fiercely with his criticism of Israel. And I'm not, you know, there are, there are enough people who characterize those um, political differences anti-Semitic that me endorsing him uh, felt like I was buying into that, um, you know, into into something that was that, you know, was abhorrent to me. I really disagree with his. I think Roger, like many critics of Israel, first of all, people who criticize Israeli policy should not be characterized as anti-Semitic. But people who apply a different standard to judging Israel than they would to judging an Arab country, um, I think then that you've crossed a line there. And I, I do think that Roger does that. You know, I've now looked at some of his stuff and I think, you know, I like I said, I do not think people who criticize that, that people who criticize Israel policies should not be called anti-Semitic. But I do I do think that many people are applying where Israel's critics are applying a double standard. So just to be clear, when, when you were interviewed by Crystal Ball on Breaking Points, it became kind of a very talked about interview, particularly the part where she was disagreeing with you about your view on vaccines. We did a segment on this show talking about that interview and my main critique with her, who she and she's a friend of mine, was that I didn't have a problem with her disagreeing with your views on vaccines. Lots of people do. She described it, though, as a red line, which seemed to me her way of saying, I don't disagree, disagree with you here, but you're so far beyond the pale about an issue that I regard as so sacred that the fact that, you dis that I disagree with you here means you're basically off limits, like you're radioactive. You're not susceptible to consideration for support no matter what in a way that, say, Joe Biden wouldn't be. That's the impression I got when you didn't just disagree with Water Waters on Israel, but deleted the praise, namely... Doesn't matter how much I agree with him. I regard him as a person who's so radioactive that he should never be praised under any circumstances because of his view on Israel. That's a red line for me. Is that essentially what motivated your deletion and how you view people like Roger Waters and those who share his views on Israel? No, not at all. In fact, I, I, I continue to admire Roger Waters for his positions on you know, for his courageous positions on the Ukraine, on Julian Assange, on COVID, but you know, I, my because of the that issue is so sensitive and radioactive to people. I did not want to leave any any opportunity for people to misunderstand. Since apparently, I guess, as my understand it now, he's more well known for his anti-Israel position than probably any other position. 
And so Mi Chen charged me praising him without making really clear what I was praising him for, and that I did not buy into his other stuff was a, a source of confusion to people that I did not want to leave up there. Fair enough. I mean, I think the reason why he's most known for that is sometimes the same reason you're most known for your views on vaccines, even though you have views on lots of other things which is because a lot of times people look for ways to take establishment critics and kind of render them radioactive by focusing on the one issue they know people will be most hostile to. But let me, let me ask you about the substance of the Israel position. Um, you know, you alluded to the fact that your family had long been supporters of Israel. That was kind of the standard Democratic Party position for a long time, still is. At the same time, Israel has clearly changed over the years. The demographic shifts in the population have made it a much more religious society, more right-wing society. And I think any honest observer in the region or anywhere acknowledges that a two-state solution, the kind of way that people justify defending Israel, is now essentially impossible. There's way too many settlements in the West Bank, and those people are never moving, those settlers. You'd need a civil war between the government and Israel to do it. From the position of someone who's running for U.S. president, would your view be that the U.S. should continue to provide billions of dollars every year in aid to Israel unconditionally, meaning no matter how they treat the Palestinians, no matter what it is that they become politically, or would you condition that aid on them treating the Palestinians more humanely and more fairly? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a long and complex question. And I've been to Israel, I've visited specifically um, Palestinian settlements within Israel and in, uh, however you want to call it, West Bank or Judea and Samaria. I've been visited, I've spoken with government officials there. I understand that it, it, that Palestinians are mistreated in Israel. I've seen, you know, the water allocations that were very, very unfairly uh, allocated to the new settlements rather than uh, to traditional settlements that have been around in some cases for for hundreds of years. Um, in terms of the evolution, I, you know, I think if you everything has a historical context in Israel, and if you look at why we don't have a two-step two-state solution in Israel, which everybody now says they want. Um, but both in 1947 and 1940, not 1947, 1948, and then again in 2001, it was the Palestinian leadership that walked away from a two-state solution and and pledged itself to the destruction of the Jewish people. Oh, and that, you know, that's a very, very clear history. And I think at a time when they had a very, very generous solution on the table. Now, you know, the other thing I say is Israel is a democracy. But it's a flawed democracy, just like the United States. But if I was a dissident Arab, Palestinian, would I rather be a dissident in Israel or in Saudi Arabia or Oman or Qatar or any other Arab nation? If you're a dissident, you get up on the, in the middle of the public square and denounce the government, where would you rather be? You'd rather be in Israel. It's the only place you're not going to get in trouble. And uh, but and that does not mean that it's a perfect democracy. It isn't. It's very, very flawed. And I do not, you know, I differ vociferously with the, the views of, the, you know, the right wing, religious right wing groups that have uh, in many ways been dictating policy in Israel over the, next, over the last few years. 
I think part of the responsibility of the United States is to try to find a path to justice for the Palestinians. Uh, but on all these issues, you know, if, you're, if you live on any of these other countries you, and you're gay, for example, you can be killed for that. Israel is the only place where you have freedom. If you're a transvestite, if you have other kind of dissonant views, you'd much rather be in Israel than I, any other I, I place. Guess, I, I get that argument, and it, but it, go, go ahead, go ahead, you can finish. All right, well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, well, because, there, that, but, but, that, you know, Israel, it, you know, the, the um, and, and we, need, we need to have the same standard for judging Israel as we judge other Arab countries. We should, you know, and Israel, Israel is, is going into the West Bank and killing children. It's never doing that deliberately. Never. And nobody has ever said it is. Well, a lot of people have said it is. But, but let me just ask you, because okay. I, well, I just want to focus I, the question. In all of those other countries, it is the deliberate policy of those countries to attack and target civilians okay, and I, to kill them. Okay, so so let me let so me just I, I just I want just to focus the question have, though because you have the kind of abstract question that you're talking about, which is who's better, Israel or Saudi Arabia? And I don't think anybody would doubt you'd rather live in Israel than Saudi Arabia if that's you know the choice. Just like people say, I'd rather live in Ukraine. Than, I'd rather live in Ukraine than Russia. Um, Ukraine seems more democratic to me than Russia. But when it comes to Ukraine, I've heard you making the argument that even though Ukraine might be our ally, even though they might be more democratic than Russia, we have so many people that you speak eloquently about suffering here at home that this is a war we can't afford. So if you were to go around the United States, as you're already doing and will continue to do, and the question is not who's better, the Israeli or the Palestinians. The question is, why are we in the United States transferring billions of dollars of aid each year to a country, Israel, whose citizens in a lot of ways enjoy better standards of living than a lot of the ways American citizens live? What is your argument for why we should send so much money to Israel but not to Ukraine? Well, I mean, the, the, historically, that argument has been that Israel is, a, is the a model democracy in the Middle East. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. And as a democracy, it's, it's a model for peacekeeping, for, you know, for, um, and uh, there's never been a, a time in history when a democracy has, a, has gone to war with another democracy. So I think our policy in the United States should be to support the, the growth of democracies around the world. Um, I, you know, if but, I, but that was I'm the argument for. But that was the argument for for going into invading Iraq. We're going to spread democracy in the Middle East. That's the argument for supporting the Ukrainians, which is the Ukrainians are a democracy well, no, and Russia is an autocracy. There's a and Glenn, I agree with you, and I think there. But there, I do think there's a difference between what we did in Iraq, which is imposing a U.S. system, which I don't think was really democracy at the point of a gun. Uh, and you know, going in in a preemptive war, which we've never done in our history, on a pretext in which we lied to the American public about weapons of mass destruction, and uh, and you know, and our policy of assisting an existing democracy in the Middle East that has had a long relationship with our country and a long and supportive relationship with our country, but. You know, I I think you raised some important points. I think it probably it, at this point in history, um, Israel is uh, 
you know, is much better able to take care of itself than it was in the past. And we need to look at all those things. Just on, on the question of uh, kind of the history, the history of doing a preemptive war to impose democracy at the point of a gun, the specter of Vietnam hangs a lot over your candidacy, in part because your father did drive out a Democratic incumbent based on his opposition to the Vietnam War in a way that I think could be a model for your candidacy, but also because your uncle and 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 then the administration of which your father was a part as well, which is the Johnson administration, is credited or blamed for starting the war. Do you see the war in Vietnam also as an example of a war started based on false pretenses with the Gulf of Tonkin, one where we tried to impose democracy at the point of a rifle? Yeah, of course. I mean, we were no, we were trying to stop democracy. The, the, the U.S. objective in Vietnam was literally trying to stop the effect of democracy. Right. So, you know, we, after Ho Chi Minh had, had fought side by side with Americans against the Japanese, in fact, he called his army the American Liberation Army because he had such admiration for the United States. During World War II, the French were, of course, uh, captured by, the, by Germany, and they withdrew from Southeast Asia, which was their, you know, major source of income. And after the war, because of the Atlantic Charter, the, the agreement was that the people of Vietnam could vote on who, on whether they wanted Ho Chi Minh to lead them or whether they wanted some other government. And when it became clear that they were all going to, that they were going to vote overwhelmingly for Ho Chi Minh and the communist government, the CIA went in there with the you know, French and, uh, and made sure that those elections never took place. I want to clarify my uncle's position on Vietnam. He was surrounded by war hawks who were trying to get him to go into first Laos, which he refused, mm -hmm. and they considered that treasonous. And then into Vietnam, both, both his intelligence apparatus and his military brass. Um, the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were trying to get him for his entire term, his three years in office, to send 250,000 combat troops to Vietnam. He, he refused. He thought Vietnam should fight its own wars. And, but he said, I'll send some advisors in, just the way that the French sent us advisors during the Revolutionary War, but they're not going to fight. And he never sent one combat troop into Vietnam. Of course, the, the advisors under the rules of engagement were not allowed to fight, but many of them did. A month before he died, there were 16,000 of them, and that's the maximum he would send, even though he was being asked to send 250,000. He sent fewer troops to Vietnam than he sent to Ole Miss to put James Meredith into the University of Mississippi, in Jackson, University of Mississippi, one black man. So he had, there were fewer troops in Vietnam that he sent who were Green Berets. They were helicopter instructors and other kind of instructors. A month before he died, he asked his, he heard that a, a Green Beret had been killed in Vietnam. And he asked one of his aides, give me the entire combat fatality list in Vietnam, and they came back to him, and there were 75 Americans who had been killed, which he didn't know. And that day, he said, I want them all out. That's too many men and too many deaths. And he signed national security order, ordering all American troops home from Vietnam by the end of 1965, with the first thousand out by December 64, which would have been a month later. November of 64, or 63, sorry, by December of 64, 1,000 out. So they would have had to be out during the month of November, December. 
November 22nd, he was killed. And a week later, President Johnson came in, revoked that order, and left those troops in Vietnam. And then a year later, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which of course was a, I guess you'd call it a false flag event. It was a, it was a non-event that was, you know, that was pretended to be a, a military attack on our Navy in the Gulf of Tonkin that never took place. I mean, Johnson himself said those boys were shooting against flying fish. They right. were shooting. They weren't shooting against uh, against an attack by the Viet by uh, the Viet Cong or by the um, uh, by the NVPP, the, the you know the North Army of North Vietnam. And we then sent two hundred fifty thousand in, and then you know my father ran against Johnson. He was killed. Nixon gets elected, and then sends five hundred sixty-eight thousand in. So you know, saying blaming my uncle for Vietnam is is a stretch. Although my father did accept that blame, but he you know he shouldn't have. There's, I think, one of the most amazing parts of our political discourse, and it's amazing people accept it. Is that all, a lot of documents, key documents, relating to your uncle's assassination, continue to be classified. 60 years later, even though almost everybody involved, not everybody, but almost everybody involved is dead for quite a long, long time. Do you believe that his resistance to escalating the war in Vietnam in the way you just described was a reason for that assassination? And do you, would you intend to declassify all of those documents immediately upon being president? I mean, legally, they got to be disqualified. They got to be declassified. They should have been declassified in 2016. Trump promised he'd do it, and then he never did it. Who knows why they didn't do it? That's a, that is a real mystery, because he doesn't like the CIA much. So I don't know why he didn't declassify them. But of course I would declassify them. If this is a 60-year-old murder. You know, why are they still hiding stuff? All the people who were involved in it are dead. Why, are they, why, why is the institution, the CIA still hiding material on my uncle's death. It's a good question. Um, let me ask you about Ukraine, just uh, one more question, which is I've heard you before criticize President Biden the way a lot of people have, that it seems very striking. There's no effort, seemingly, to try and end this war diplomatically. If anything, there seems to be an attempt on the United States to block diplomatic efforts to end this war. Uh, do you think it would have been possible to diplomatically avert the war beforehand or to end it now? And if so, how would you do that? Yeah, I, I think it can be ended immediately. I, you know, to me, it seems clear that Putin did not want this war, that he didn't, you know, that, I, I mean, even in, you know, when the Donbass voted 90 to 10 to, to join Russia, Putin didn't want them. Putin said, no, you stay in Ukraine. And then, you know, he was part of the proposal of the Minsk Accords, which would have left Donbass part of Ukraine and, uh, you know, an autonomous region so that they could protect their their the Russian ethnic citizens who were then being murdered by the Azov Battalion and by the, the Ukrainian government, and that they could continue to practice their own language and culture. And, um, but that... You know, I think that's the basis for a, a peace agreement. And the, the key part of the Minsk Accords was that NATO would not go into, would agree permanently, we are not going into the Ukraine, which is an understandable request from Russia, who has been invaded 
three times through the Ukraine. The last time in 1940, uh, 40, 41, or 41, um, one out of every seven Russians was killed. And a third of the Russians were, uh, Russia was, was reduced to rubble. So of course they don't want a, an enemy um, an enemy military in charge of the Ukraine. And they've made that clear for since 1992, since the, they took the wall down and the one request they made, they said, you can put NATO troops in, in United Germany. We will withdraw 400,000 troops from United Germany, but do not make us a promise. You will not move NATO, NATO to the east. And we promise them, yeah, we won't move it one inch to the east. Well, we moved it a thousand miles to the east and to 14 new countries. And now we've surrounded and encircled the Russians and we're treating them like the enemy. And, and of course, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then, you know, you know, Glenn, um, the, the, the clear evidence that the United States was involved in the 2014 coup that removed uh, Viktor Yakanakovich's government, which is a you know a, a Russia a government Ukrainian government that was duly elected by the Ukrainian people, and that we regarded as too sympathetic to to the to the government of Russia, and so you know we we pumped five billion dollars into the project of overthrowing that government. The, and then we install our own government, which is Victoria Newland, as right. we have her take on the phone, picking the new cabinet. And of course, the Russians aren't going to like that too much. Ukraine is 400 miles from Moscow. And we've already been installing missile systems, Aegis missile systems in Romania and Poland that are nuclear capable. When my uncle, you know, in 1962, when the Russians did that to us in Cuba, we would have invaded them. Of course, we would invade them today. Exactly. Um, let me ask you about China. Uh, you just alluded to the fact that we're treating the Russians baselessly as an enemy. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you see China in the same way? Do you see them necessarily as an enemy of the United States who needs to be treated as an enemy? Or do you think we can also foster more collaborative or at least less uh, antagonistic relationships with Beijing? Well, I do see them as an adversary of the United States. I think um, they're competitive with us. They're ambitious, and they they do. They, the indications are that the Chinese leadership does want to dominate the globe and have access to the natural resources in the developing world. Um, but the worst thing, the Russian, the the Chinese do not want to compete with us militarily. And they shouldn't. I mean, we have, we, you know, we spend, we have three times the military budget that they do. We spend more on our military than the top, next top 10 nations combined. And, uh, and we have, you know, we have bases all over, we have 800 bases all over the world. The Chinese have one and a half bases outside of China. So they're not looking for a military competition and we shouldn't be either. I'm not scared of America competing with China on an economic plane. And I think we should welcome that competition. It would be good for the Chinese, good for the Americans, and good for the rest of the world. We should welcome that kind of, and we should de-escalate the military confrontations, take the pressure off of China to, you know, to, and Taiwan, stop, de-escalate that controversy and let them figure it out for themselves. And, you know, and let's uh, and let's compete with them. Let's bring our 
close those most of those bases, bring the money home, get the peace dividend, rebuild our industrial base, and have an economic competition against the Chinese that's friendly, that's congenial, but that's vigorous and robust. And I'm not scared of that. I'm not scared that America cannot outcompete China head-to-head on economic issues. One of the flashpoints, obviously, between the U.S.-Chinese relationship is Taiwan. The peace has been maintained between the two countries based on this one China policy that said everybody recognizes Taiwan as part of China, but the U.S. would maintain strategic ambiguity in the event of what it would do if China invaded Taiwan and tried to physically control it. Biden, on several occasions, whether planned or otherwise, seemed to have abandoned that five-decade-old posture of the U.S. government by saying, no, I absolutely would use military force in order to protect Taiwan in the event the Chinese invaded. Do you think that China would actually invade Taiwan if we did what you recommend, namely kind of de-escalate, pull back a little bit from surrounding their country with all the bases we have? And what would be your posture if asked what you would do if China did invade Taiwan? Would you maintain this ambiguity or would you agree with Biden to say, no, we would absolutely go to war with China to stop them? Well, that strategic ambiguity only only works right. up to the point of invasion. So once they invade, then, then your your policy is no longer ambiguous. Uh, strategic ambiguity, I think, is the best uh, posture for the United States, and I intend to maintain it. So I'm not going to tell you what I would do on this, you know, TV show and and lose that advantage. I um, but I, you know, I don't I don't think the Chinese want a military confrontation with Taiwan. Taiwan is armed to the teeth. And you know it is. It's been preparing for forty years for a um, for a war with China if there is an invasion to repel an invasion, and it would be a catastrophe for China and the rest of the world if if Taiwan went to war and we you know we lost um, we lost our, our we lost the source of a lot of our uh, you know computer chips and uh, and many many of the, the of the of the electronics that are now used in Taiwan that are absolutely vital to our industries. The Chinese have the same dependence. So I don't think the Chinese want to go to war with Taiwan. They may exert pressures to have a greater greater degree of reunification like they did with Hong Kong. But, you know, I think we should try to let them settle it on their own before we start making military threats and rattling sabers, which I think just makes it more difficult for everybody and makes it more likely that we'll end up in a military confrontation. I, I think you answered this question in, in, the, in the previous answer, but I just want to be, be very clear about it because I'm super interested in it, which is you described the way in which you thought, and I think clearly it's true, that the U.S. has been provoking Russia, kind of expanding NATO right up into its borders, uh, right on the most sensitive part of their border, changing their government, the democratically elected government, from a pro-Russia to an anti Russia government, imagine if the Chinese did that to a government in Mexico while arming them, all the other analogies that that you pointed out in the way that we're kind of encircling Russia, making them more aggressive and paranoid. Do you think we're doing the same thing when it comes to China with all of these bases we're putting in Guam and Australia and South Korea and the Philippines, including nuclear tip missiles, sending B-52s that are nuclear capable? Do you think a lot of what is happening is that the U.S. itself is being provocative unnecessarily? Yeah, I, I think it's the same people. It's the neocons in the White House and the State Department who want a war with China. I, I don't think there's, I don't think they're ambiguous about it. 
you know, they believe that the United States should use its military force while we still have this incredible superiority to dominate the globe with violence. That is the entire philosophy of the neocons. And I, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's been a catastrophe. Every venture that they've brought us into has been a cataclysm. And a China war it will be the end of the world. Without question. Uh, and they don't seem to care. They do not seem to care. They do not. I don't know. We seem to have lost our fear of nuclear war. It's absolutely incredible. Like, it's something that just cannot happen, even though we got close on several occasions to having it happen. Let me conclude by asking you a couple of questions about COVID and vaccines and the like. You alluded earlier to the fact that the kind of health establishment, health officials at the beginning of the pandemic use things like lockdowns, even though they have long been discredited. And I've heard you before talk about the fact that obviously things Tony Fauci said and the World Health Organization said ended up being proven untrue. What do you think the motives there were? Do you think there was deliberate deceit on the part of these health policy officials? And, and what was motivating that behavior? You know, I never, I never discuss that because I don't know for sure. I, you know, and like, if you read my book on Anthony Fauci, I never speculate about what's going on in his head or why he's doing certain things or why Bill Gates does certain things, because I don't know that my, my currency is facts and provable facts. And that book has 2200 footnotes that show what happened and the and show and, and detail and chronicle the decisions that people were made that were irrational and that you know had were utterly irrational and that they clearly knew were irrational and I can show that um, but I can't show why they were making those decisions uh, I, and I wouldn't want to speculate about it and I leave that to other people. I don't know if you saw it, but this week, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook and Meta, gave an interview in which he said that Facebook was being continuously pressured to censor views about the pandemic and about COVID, about the origins of COVID, about the measures necessary for the lockdown, about the efficacy of vaccines. And many of those claims that they wanted censored proved to be either highly debatable or, in fact, true. In other words, the government was demanding censorship not just of dissent from their views, but of ideas that were true, including many of the views that you were expressing. And a lot of those were censored from the internet, from our most significant internet platforms, including questioning the origins of the, of the, the pandemic and the efficacy of the vaccines and the like. Obviously, you have concerns about the collaboration between big tech and the government when it came to censoring COVID. You talked about that earlier. What is your view overall on the way in which the U.S. security state and big tech seem to be collaborating to censor our most important political debates, including on Ukraine, Russiagate, and lots of other questions? I mean, well, the good news is that I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the big tech you know, everything that happened, Glenn, during the pandemic was obscure. You know, we, we saw kind of these outcomes that made no sense and that looked very sinister. And um, but we really had no way of knowing exactly what was happening. So you, you, it's hard to explain the, the cooperation, at what levels the cooperation between the big tech companies and the government was happening. It was clearly happening. And why is was it happening? Was it, you know, how was the government pressuring them? Was it cooperative? Were they both in on it? And I think more and more 
Um, the story that we're getting out of Silicon Valley is we didn't want to do it. They made us do it. And I think that's encouraging a little bit because <laughs> these are the companies that promised us they were going to democratize communications across the globe. And then they became the primary weapons for totalitarian control of populations. Um, but and you wondered whether, you know, how much they were, how much was Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, Sergey Brin, how much were they embracing enthusiastically the government propaganda efforts? But I think more and more we're seeing that the um, that they were doing it pretty much unwillingly. At least that's what they're saying now, that, that it was the government, it was the NSA and the CIA um, that were that were essentially forcing them to censor things that they knew were true, criticism they knew were true. I and mean, the, the whole um, the whole trope of vaccine misinformation, that phrase from the beginning, uh, we've known from the beginning because, because we've seen the emails two years ago, that it had nothing to do with uh, with factual accuracy or inaccuracy. It was simply a euphemism for any statement that departed from government orthodoxies and government assurances to the public, uh, you know, and government proclamations. It it didn't. It was nothing to do with. I mean, they can't they can't point to a single. Uh, statement that I made about vaccines that was inaccurate or about lockdowns or masks or anything else. But everything that we that I put up on social media was cited and sourced to government databases or to peer-reviewed publications. So, you know, but what they were calling it misinformation because they wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to censor it. And that's, you know, we fought a revolution in this country uh, and between 25,000 and 70,000 Americans died in the, you know, during that period uh, to, in order to, to make sure that governments couldn't censor its critics. You know, the, American citizens are allowed to criticize their government. That's what the First Amendment says. Yeah, um, it would be good if that reality returned. Um, just a couple more questions. Uh, you said that, you know, just now that there's nothing that you ever said about vaccines that has been proven untrue. Um, you know, you can hear all kinds of claims being made about things you believe about vaccines, even though you wrote a best-selling book that was on the New York Times bestseller list that made those views very clear. There still seems to be some confusion. I think a lot of it is deliberate. So let me ask you while you're here, just kind of the core issues. Do you believe that there are vaccines that provide benefits on the net that you would encourage people to take or that you yourself would take? And then the second part of that is, do you believe the link between vaccines and the increasing rates of autism has been proven or is that something that you think needs more research? No, to answer your second question first, it, it, science is so overwhelming on the link between vaccines and autism. It needs no further research. The research is out there. The CDC's own research, um, you know, the, the data that we now have that shows that the CDC knew from uh, 1999, when they went out and researched themselves secretly, uh, they hired a, a Belgian uh, epidemiologist and they and, and uh, who ran a team of scientists that went into the vaccine safety data link, which is the biggest repository for vaccine health information. It's the it's all the data for the top ten HMOs, and there's millions and millions of lives in the, you know of um, of lives in there. 
and that they looked at, they did a study, Glenn, that looked at, because this was a definitive study, they looked at children who got, um, who got uh, hepatitis B vaccines during the first 30 days of their lives, and they compared that to kids who did not. In other words, kids who got it later than 30 days or didn't get them at all. And there was an 1135% uh, increased risk of autism among the kids who got that vaccine early. And they knew at that moment what was causing the autism epidemic. And then they had a two-day meeting in which they decided there's 70 people at that meeting who from the, all the vaccine companies and all of the, uh, the health agencies and the academics who were involved in developing and promoting vaccines. And they had a two-day meeting um, in which they develop strategies about how to hide that from the American public. And I got a hold of those transcripts and I published uh, a lot of them. They're now available on our website. But I, from then on, there have been hundreds of studies now. And we you can go to our website and look at them that confirm and validate the link between autism and vaccines. Not only autism, but this entire explosion of chronic disease that began in 1989, food allergies, peanut allergies, uh, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, neurological diseases like ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, uh, ASD, and uh, all of those began around 1989 and the same year that the vaccine schedule exploded. I got three vaccines to kids. My kids got 72. And that vaccine generation is where you see this huge explosion of chronic disease. I want to say this. It's not the only culprit. It's clearly a culprit. And all of those illnesses are listed on the, on the manufacturer's inserts of those 72 vaccines as vaccine side effects. Every one of those diseases that became epidemic in 89, all of them are list. They list them themselves as potential side effects from the vaccine. But it's not the only thing. But, 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 I, guess that's a sure. but I guess that's the question is that's that's that. And that was the first part of my question, in fairness to you, which was <clears throat> a lot of medications that we take that everybody would take if they had a certain disease has side effects, things that can go wrong in certain cases when you take them. So with regard to your view of vaccines, is your view that there are side effects that are taking place that the pharmaceutical industry and government have been lying about and concealing? Or is it that these vaccines, because of these side effects on the net, are actually do more harm than good? In other words, are things that should not be taken that you would not want your kids taking that you would not take yourself if you have the choice to do it again? Yeah, I... The, the, the problem with answering that question is that for, for all of the vaccines, we do not have the data. And the reason we don't have the data is vaccines are the only medication that are exempt from pre-licensing placebo-controlled trials. So the only way that you get that information, Glenn, is if you test a large cohort of, of people who are vaccinated, and, and measure them against a large cohort that are unvaccinated and then watch them for about five years. And those studies are never done. The entire safety study for the hepatitis B vaccine was four days. And you won't see anything in four days. And the problem, and you know, you want, you need to look at, because there's a lot of um, side effects that have long incubation periods and long diagnostics horizons that just will remain invisible forever. And I'll just give you a really good example. The DTP vaccine, diphtheria tendinitis pertussis, is the most 
popular vaccine in the world. It's given to 161 million African kids a year. It was it was it no longer given to Americans because it was causing so many so many injuries. One in every 300 kids was getting uh, uh, permanent brain damage or dead. And but they're still giving it to kids in Africa and South Asia. And the Danish government, Bill Gates, went, he tried to get money for this program because he said 30 million kids have been saved. He went to the Danish government in 2017 and he said, well, we use support this program because we're saving all these lives. And the Danish government said, show us the data. He couldn't do it. So they went and did a study in Guinea-Bissau in West Africa where half the kids have been vaccinated over 30 years and half had not between two and three years of age or two and three months of age. Sorry, two and six months of age, half of that period, exactly half were vaccinated, exactly half were not. And it was a perfect natural experiment. And when they looked at the data for 30 years, what they found was that the girls who got that vaccine were 10 times more likely to die over the next three months than, than children who didn't. And they weren't dying of anything anybody ever associated with the vaccine. They were not dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. They were protected against it but they were dying of anemia and bilharzia and malaria and uh, pulmonary diseases and and, uh, um, and uh, other sort of local diseases and cuts and scratches. And nobody noticed over 30 years that it was only the vaccinated girls who were dying or that they were the ones who were dying disproportionately. And what had happened is the vaccine was protecting them against the target disease but it had ruined their immune system. So they couldn't defend themselves against other illnesses. And that's the problem. Nobody noticed that for 30 years. You need to have studies that actually measure those things in order to make a real determination about whether the vaccine is averting more harm than it's, than it's, uh, than it, than it's causing. Yeah, I think one of the problems with this is, you know, you really have to delve in for a lot of years, as you've done, in order to kind of be conversant in these studies. And at the same time, there's a huge profit motive to discrediting the things you're saying. There's a lot of scientists who are paid by pharmaceutical companies. There's enormous profit model and profit motive to kind of depict what you're saying as, you know, crazy or conspiracy theories and the like. So I think it's important to kind of give you the platform to make your case um, because otherwise we're just bombarded by this profit-driven propaganda from, from Big Pharma. Let me conclude by asking you, um, you, 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 you talked a lot about the extreme deceit on the part of the intelligence communities when it comes to these various wars. In the Vietnam War, there was someone named Daniel Ellsberg who kind of was an original advocate of the war, helped the planet, got to the point where because of his access to top secret information, he turned against it, released the Pentagon Papers to show the government was lying about that war. Uh, he was turned into a criminal. Julian Assange, Edward Snowden are two people who did the same thing, Chelsea Manning, but as part of the war on terror, they're now being turned into criminals. Chelsea Manning spent time in prison. Julian Assange is trying to be extradited. Uh, uh, Snowden is in asylum. What do you think about that group of uh, whistleblowers or people who have published these massive amounts of information that were labeled top secret? And would you use your presidential power to pardon them and to protect them from further criminal liability? Yeah, I mean, I would put a statue of uh, of Snowden in in Washington. I mean, I think that you know when Snowden when Snowden released, nobody in our country knew about that the intelligence agencies were mining all of our data and spying on Americans. Members of Congress didn't know. I remember pe pe members of Congress oh calling Congress. me and saying, "Tell me what's going on." I'm not in the intelligence committee, and I haven't heard this. 
Yeah, and Congress then went and acted on what he told them to change the rules. Oh, how are you making this guy a criminal? He's an American hero. Yeah, I'm going to pardon those guys, you know, up front. I mean, I'm going to look at their cases. Assange, I'm going to pardon on day one because it's, it is insane. He's, a, he's effectively a newspaper publisher. And I don't see why every newspaper publisher in this country is not out there, you know, with pitchforks and torches in front of the White House saying, let this guy go. He didn't, you know, what did he do wrong? Especially since a lot of them published the same documents he did. He partnered with the New York Times and The Guardian and El País. Um, And it's amazing what a threat it is to every journalist in this country. I think the problem is a lot of these journalists don't actually ever act adversarially to the intelligence communities and therefore rightly don't feel threatened by prosecutions of journalists who do. Well, let me just say, um, unlike a lot of journalists, we do not intend to pretend your campaign doesn't exist. We have been reporting on it. We're going to continue to report on it. I hope you'll come back on the show as you continue to campaign around the country. It was great to talk to you. I really appreciate your taking so much time to go over so many issues in depth with us. Um, and good luck on the campaign trail. And thank you very much. And, you know, I want to thank you for all the years that you've spent in the hinterlands trying to do journalism. I mean, there, there, you can name the, the number of journalists with integrity that are still out there. You know, it's it's you, it's uh, Matt Taibbi, it's Paul Thacker. I don't know, you, you can probably name some other ones. It's a very, very small number of people who, who continue to do investigative journalism. And I think you had to leave the country because you were under such abuse. But anyway, so you're, you know, you are in my book a hero too. And, um, and you know, thank you for what you've done for our country. I really appreciate that. It's nice for you to say. Hope to talk to you again soon. Have a great evening. You too. All right, bye-bye. That concludes our show for this evening. As a reminder, our system update is also available in podcast form. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and every other major podcasting platform. If you rate and review the show, it helps the show's visibility. As another reminder, every Tuesday and Thursday night, we move to Locals, where we have our interactive after show, after our show here on Rumble. To have access to that, it's interactive in nature. We take your questions, respond to your feedback. Simply join our Locals community. For those of you who've been watching, we really appreciate it. We hope to see you back tomorrow night and every night at 7 p.m. Eastern, exclusively here on Rumble. Have a great evening, everybody.